Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, ladies, and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor Davis Hanson is the star and the namesake. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He hangs his hat at victorhanson.com. We'll talk more about that later in this episode. A lot to talk about today. The first item will be the January 6th committee report and Donald Trump's reaction to that. And we'll get Victor's thoughts on this important topic and other important topics right after these important messages. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, you all ready for Christmas? Even though people are listening to this after Christmas, you know, the stockings are hung by the chimney with care and all that jazz at the, at the Hanson Yes, House. I was surprised that our president didn't, when he had his Christmas message, I found it uh, doubly insulting. I hate to say that at this time of the year, but he called for unity and he said there's too much heated rhetoric. This is after he had given three speeches calling half the country un-American and semi-fascist. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't mention the birth of Christ or the religious centricity, the central matter of Christ. He didn't say, he didn't even mention it. It yeah. was this, if it's, I guess somebody who writes the scripts, uh, they're so secularist or atheist or agnostic, that's taboo. But I don't think I've ever heard a president address the nation on Christmas, but doesn't reference at all what Christmas is for. You're what surprised, it is. Victor? You're surprised that uh, no, that, it's part that's of how this... jo- Joey uh, wishes the world well on December 25th? It's just amazing, though. I know he's in his dementia years, but it's amazing how he has transmogrified from old Joe Biden from Scranton, the Catholic, all this phony. He was always an obnoxious, mean SOB, but mm-hmm. now he's an empty vessel, and it's almost as if Michelle and Barack and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the squad are coding. You know, they're typing in every day into his brain cells what he's supposed to do with no pushback. I guess his wife was always much more far left than everybody had assumed. So she plays a central role. But you still think, Victor, strategically, even Obama would probably say, you got to have Jesus in here. Get this. We got to we got to check this box, you know. 
you would think. But I don't yeah. think there's anybody in the Democratic Party at the top echelons that has any iota of religiosity. I, I know the Obamas tried to play on that in 2008, right. and it boomeranged with Reverend Wright because he was, <laughs> some ways uh, he was anti, America. well, he was the Antichrist. I mean, when he said, right. they won't let me talk, dim Jews won't let me talk to Obama, and then goddamn America, and then these mysterious missiles that are sniffing out uh, Arabs that the Jews made, all this crazy stuff. Right. So it didn't work well, and he dropped that. Remember, he, that was very funny because he said he went to every, they said in a, I think a Ch- Chicago Sun interview, they said, are you really that religious? Meaning we're left wing atheist and you're our champion. So we're kind of mm-hmm. disturbed. And he said, yep, because he was trying to appeal to the working democratic classes, which he did win. And right. he said, yep, I go to church. He goes, really? And he goes, every Sunday. And then when he was asked, did he sit there? Why, and I think he did when Reverend Wright went on about Goddamn America. He kind of went, well, we didn't go every Sunday. Right. So it was, he's another example of somebody that was a chronic prevar- prevaricator and he was never called on it. I think, I think in the, in the Illinois legislature on many an occasion, he voted present. No, he was, fa- he was famous as Mr. President and yeah. both sides didn't, didn't like that. He was right. from the very beginning. He ran for Congress, remember, against, was it Bobby Seale? Or who was the the ex-Black Panther in Chicago that had the congressional seat? And he was just wiped out, Obama was. I think it was yeah. in 2002. And then he made that speech in 2004 where David Alxelrod said, you know, the country's torn over Iraq. You're the first Black president candidate. I won't go on. With, I won't finish that with the Joe Biden uh, adjectives, but viable. And he said, you know, you got to say, there is no red country. There is no blue. We're going to unite. And that was the only, first and only time he ever said that. And that sp- launched his career. Mm-hmm. I think he still might have lost. You know, remember, remember the Republican. It ended up being Alan Keyes, right? But there was a Republican. I don't remember his name now. Seemingly very viable, and he had. Oh, you're some talking about his prior Senate race, and yeah, yeah, in the Senate. Yes, I, yeah. I am. Yeah, that Which, was in so, 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, and somebody released this guy's divorce twice, records twice. Jack, they yeah. released the divorce records of his primary candidate, uh, and supposedly the guy had gone to a I don't know a peep show in Paris with his wife, and they had a messy divorce, and she complained about it. And then they leaked it again in the in the general election, both. And they were under court orders to be sealed. Right. And he said at one point, this was quite fortuitous. It very helped. It helped us out. That was David Axelrod's contacts as an ex-journalist turned political pro. Right. And they had all of these uh, journalistic minions that were had contacts with the court and access to people inside the the record keeping and they did it twice. It worked twice. And otherwise he probably would have lost. Yeah. It's amazing on such well, I mean, I mean, small he had a lot things of baggage. to history turns, right? He had Tony Resco giving him a lot, you know, basically for well beyond below market price, which was a gift, which he didn't play gift tax on and which the IRS let him go. And then we, he had all sorts of, of liabilities, but the big problem was that, and this is why we got Trump is because neither 
John McCain or Mitt Romney could appeal to eight to 10, I don't know what we call it, 10 million Reagan Democrats, parole voters, um, working class white Democrats that were so turned off by the aristocratic golf playing uh, Republican establishment that they voted for this hardcore leftist, thinking he was going to be a strong union guy and support them. They didn't realize that he was the one that was going to inaugurate race as the barometer of oppression and discrimination, not class. And so they lost out. And it was Donald Trump that got them back into uh, voting again. Actually, Victor, uh, and we'll we'll talk about the, the January 6th committee in a, in a few minutes, folks. But my wife, who works the polls, uh, was recounting the, the 2016 primaries. And when she came home that night, she said, you're not going to believe what happened. All these people started showing up. They were either had never voted or were, or were Democrats who were trying to vote in the Republican primary for Trump. Like It, it was clear that something was brewing um, of di- disaffected voters, in, again, including many Democrats. I have, kind like, of a bitter, I have a bitter memory of those. I was not for Trump in the primary, but by February of 2000. 16, it was clear to me that he was going to be nominated and he was going to win for the reasons you talked about. And when he went through those Midwest states and he had those rallies, you know, in late spring and early summer, they were still trying to get Kasich and all this crap. And he started saying things when you listen to him. He used that. I, I pointed out so many times he used that first person possessive pronoun, we, our you know, we out here an hour and, you, you know, as if he was one of these working people, nobody ever said, you know, you guys, uh, no farmers are noble. Pipe fitters are good. It was uh, it was a really brilliant insight to capture empathy with that that rubric, that demographic. And nobody had ever every everybody had said, ah, they're they have the highest suicide rate in the country. They're written off. The white middle class is done for. Demography is destiny. Ha, ha, ha. It's a minority vote. It's going to count. And he carved out a whole new constituency by appealing to the forgotten American. And uh, I was writing for the National Review those essays every week, you know, in July right. and August. And gosh, I don't think anybody in National Review, I think every single person thought it was insane. Or, not me. Not no, me. You, you didn't. I mean, that's a euphemism in saying they thought I had gone crazy and toxic. And that's another story. But All right. um, I was reading other essays in the magazine how he couldn't win. It would be impossible for him to win. Right. I was reading about George, reading George Will and Bill Crystal all over the Real Clear Politics aggregate. And David Frum and how the Republican Party just committed suicide. It's going to be the biggest landslide in history. And and I couldn't see it because, boy, you get eight to 10 million people that have never voted in eight and two presidential elections. You get them out. That's that's quite an achievement. Yeah, yeah it, was, it truly was. OK, what's another achievement, Victor? Maybe not a good one. The January 6th. Committee, the clock ticking, the, t- the time has run out. It, it issued its report with all kinds of findings. Donald Trump responded to it. Uh, charges of criminality, recommendations that uh, Donald Trump under the 14th Amendment not be allowed to serve in public office again. 
etc. Victor, what are your thoughts, if any, about not if any, what are your thoughts about the final report produced? Of course, if you want to talk about the committee in general and anything, if you have any thoughts on Donald Trump's response uh, to the report. Well, I mean, it's not going to be remembered, put it this way, for a couple of reasons. One, it's intrinsically flawed. And why is it intrinsically flawed? Because the interrogatories and the testimonies uh, of the witnesses are now under lock and key, and they've been selectively edited. And we know who does that the best of any of the Democrats is Adam Schiff, who's a proven liar. So you, when you see these with the report and there we have these Trump aides are saying things, we don't know what they've said because they just selected it. And usually that wouldn't be a problem if you had a bipartisan committee. But to be on the committee, if you're a Republican, you either had to, have I said before, vote to have impeached Trump or you have no political career and you'll be out of office in a few weeks. And so there was no cross-examination and they set this precedent that the Major, the minority leaders' nominations to committees will not be honored by the speaker. And that's going to haunt them. That's going to haunt them uh, very quickly because Adam Schiff and the squad will not be on committees, and they shouldn't be, to remind the Democrats of Pelosi's uh, precedent. And then they've never released the – and the, the House Republicans have a report out, and we know the January 6th people conveniently uh, – ignored all of the communications that pretty much show that Nancy Pelosi was in charge of security and she deliberately or inadvertently or stupidly or adroitly, whatever adverb is necessary, she did not have adequate security. And we know that they promulgated a lie, including all the way to the president, that Officer Sicknick was killed by MAGA people and that the headlines, I went back and looked on the first headlines in January, uh, three people killed, two people killed, and there was only one person killed. The others died of natural, I mean, they all died of natural ca causes except one, Ashley Babbitt. And then the circumstances around her uh, killing have never really been aired. We didn't get the en entire unredacted report and who testified and what about the officer in question, whose name and identity were deliberately suppressed. If he had been a white officer, and she had been an African-American going through that window unarmed with a military, uh, superb military record. And they had suppressed the identity of that officer. That would have caused a huge riot in this country. And that's very ironic because these people accused of rioting. They did riot, but that would have been nothing compared to what would have happened if the wills were reversed. I could go on, but that. That committee is completely discredited, and we know it's discredited because the two Republicans who participated are now politically inert. They talk, you know, grandly that they might, you know, go to cable news or third party, but Liz Cheney is toast. I don't think she'll ever go back to Wyoming and stay more than a couple of months. She will be a creature of the Washington um Beltway, and she has no political viability in her home state. Zero. Adam Kinzer is done for. And um, 
that's the legacy of it. And they're going to have another, I mean, they had a report, they'll have hearings and we were going, we'll find some things out that I think will be shocking. We're going to find out eventually how many FBI informants were there as Mr. Rosenblum told us when he was, I guess you call it a, an ambush by project Veritas when he bragged about he's, <laughs> it was nothing. It was a joke. It was a carnival. There was FBI informants everywhere. Everybody knew that. So that stuff's going to come out. And Christopher Ray was asked directly under oath, and he would not even give an eye, a scintilla of information about how many FBI agents he put out there, which is kind of interesting, Jack, because we know now there were more FBI informants involved in the quote-unquote uh, kidnapping plot of the Mi- Michigan governor than there were actual planners and participants. So right. we'll see. Yeah. Victor, I'm a broken record on the FBI, you know, allocating its resources to things like that and to hunting down parents who complain at school board meetings. But one of the great threats to America has been Antifa. It's brutal. It's it's organized. It destroys cities. And here's the thing that the FBI doesn't seem to be allocating resources no, they, to. No, they're, yeah. they're completely exempt. And they've even threatened uh, when I think Elon Musk took some of them off Twitter, they threatened to go trash Teslas. The FBI didn't care. The FBI doesn't exist anymore, Jack. It just it, There was an FBI once. This is not the FBI. This is, this is a group of rogue agents that, hired Twitter as a subsidiary to spy, suppress, warp public expression, not just on Twitter. We're going to learn very quickly. It goes to Google and Facebook and Apple and warp the news and paid these people as contractors, as they did Christopher Steele, because if they had done it themselves, they would be in jail uh, in violations of the First uh, Amendment. And there's nothing they're not Right. There's nothing they won't do. I mean, they, you you want to find out, you get a subpoena that they have to turn over phone records, they'll wipe them clean. You get you want the text of stroke and page, the full text to find out exactly how much prejudicial activity they were involved in during the Mueller. But they will get rid of it. It will disappear. You want to get a FISA, a series of FISA writs to spy on Americans and they will submit verbatim cut and paste passages out of the steel dossier, which at the time they knew were false. And you want to, if that's not enough, you want to doctor a document and forge it, alter it. They will do that as Kevin Kleinsmith did. Right. If, if you want to go a little further and you want to declare uh, school parents that are worried about critical waste theory, that a potential terrorist, they should be on a watch list and you should go surveil them. They will be willing to do that. Ashley Babbitt leaves her uh, diary in an apartment. People, a couple of grifters find it, want to profit for them. They will spend their time going after it and they will take James O'Keefe at three in the morning, put him out in his underwear in the hall, humiliate him and never charge him with anything. They've never charged John Eastman with anything. They just confronted him at a restaurant and right. uh, took his cell phone and they've never charged him with anything. They've never, uh, Peter Navarro was in contempt of Congress. They stopped him at an airport and put, you know, cuffs on his legs 
And he was guilty. He was as guilty as innocent as was Eric Holder when he said, I'm not going to appear for Congress. When they And they cited him in contempt of Congress. Had the FBI gone after Eric Holder, they would have been fired as racist. So and I, I could go on, but we, you know, they, they they've changed two elections. In 2016, they ran with the they paid a foreign agent to involve himself, which was a felony in a campaign. Christopher Steele in 2020, they deliberately sat on a laptop and they allowed people with contacts with the FBI, the 50 so-called investigative intelligence former operatives to sign a letter, which the FBI knew was false. And yet they went to Twitter and said to Twitter, these guys are accurate. And anybody who tries to say that this thing that we have that we know is authentic says if anybody tries to say it's authentic, we want them censored on social media. So when you get when you and then, you know, Sammy and I talked about the last four directors. Three of them have lied or misled Congress under oath. And uh, I think Christopher Ray's got pretty close to it. And then we get right. the, Mar- the Mar-Lago performance art raid where they leaked that there were nuclear codes and nuclear secrets. And now they've leaked that that's not true. So you put it all together and there's nothing that they're not incapable and they should be broken up. Chris, first thing that Christopher Ray's uh, should meet is a fire notice that he's dismissed the moment Biden is out of office. They should fire him. They should break up the FBI and they should parcel it out to other agencies. And they should never, ever again give that much power to a Washington investigative bureau. It's just it's just right. a prescription. Yeah. And, the, and the omnibus bill, 11. What? Yeah, let's talk about the talk. One, about that. Yeah, eleven billion dollars as a reward for the FBI, three hundred and seventy five million for a new headquarters. And they shouldn't in Maryland or Virginia, they shouldn't have that headquarters. It should, as I said earlier with Sammy, right. it should be built in Salt Lake City. Get it away from Washington. Victor. Anyway, if you did that, you wouldn't have Andrew McCabe investigating Hillary Clinton while his wife is running nearby uh, for a Virginia state office, getting money from the Clintons and then being told there's absolutely no conflict of interest while you're investigating the Clintons who are channeling money to his wife while she's running for office. I I think we are. We delude ourselves sometimes thinking, and I know this doesn't fit neatly into a timeline, but the FBI institutionally pushing back because Trump was uh, harming the reputation of this institution. We're not going to let this happen, blah, 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 blah. You're quoting quoting directly, uh, Andrew's not going to let that happen. That was Peter Strzok said about McCabe, remember, to Lisa. Well, true, but but. Our major institutions, the academy, we see problems, or me as a Roman Catholic, like what the hell's happening in the Catholic Church? You think these things are are more um, reactions in, in real time, more proximate to us now, but they really represent rot that has been going on for quite a long time. By the way, I'm not attacking my church in this regard, but there are problems, and I think you look back, these things are happening, the causes are from 70 years ago. You look at the academy, Bill Buckley was writing God and Man at Yale in 1950. So this stuff has been percolating and brewing for ages. So it's just not, you know, something was going on the FBI before 2016 that you would have so many people so ideological. Yeah, that's a really good point because we have so many people that we're close with that keep writing that this was 
uh, a pathology among the Washington elite, the McCabe's of the world, the Mueller's of the world, the James Baker's of the world, the Lisa Page's of the world, uh, the James Combs. Where'd they come from? They came up from the ranks, many of them. And who... Who? What are they doing now? There's a few whistleblowers, and they're all closing ranks, and they're ostracizing them, and they're demonizing them, and some of them are under suspension without pay. So there's something institutionalized within the FBI. There's an arrogance. There's a hubris. Whatever it is, it is channeling people. It is warping them, grooming them, forming them so that when they get into p- positions of power, they start to appear in the news doing things like, you know, I mean, the people in Twitter are not the director that were dealing with Twitter, whether they were retired and working for Twitter or they were the 80 or some agents that were scanning social. They were not the top people. They were willingly do it, doing it. And if you look at their c- communications, they're, they're full of hubris and arrogance. So something's wrong there. And if we don't stop it, um, we're going to be prisoners of these people. And I think the the right has to give up this idea that we on the conservative side always support intelligence and military and surveillance because they're supposedly hyper patriotic. No, these people are revolutionaries. They really are. And yeah. they they're sort of like a people's people's FBI. And um it, yeah, it's scary. People's, pe- people's in the in the communist sense of yeah, people's exactly. democratic republic a, of like of we China. have a pe- people's military and a people's CIA and a people's FBI and a people's DOJ, yeah. and they're woke and they're very dangerous, and you should be very careful of them. Wait till we get the the eighty seven thousand IRS agents and the people's IRS. I can tell you one thing: two miles from me, Jack. There is about 5,000 people every Sunday, and they have one of the biggest marts in California where everything is for sale. I'm not talking about plants and used clothes. I'm talking about things right off the shelf. If Mm -hmm. I want to get a brand new shovel or I want to get a gas blower or whatever, I can go down there and get a new one. Don't ask me where they come from, but... There is millions of dollars that change hands. And I can guarantee you that the new IRS or the state franchise board is not going to go after that right. to see whether they're paying sales tax or not, or whether those yeah. people who are selling because they're a protected demographic, they will go after the person listening to this who is a small business person or professional who maybe deducted him one quarter of his office while he had an office at the plant or something, and they're going to go after and harass and harass you. They're not going to go after the wealthy. They're not going to go after the poor. They're going to go after the upper middle class that they despise. Victor, I don't know how anyone's going to have any money to spend $600 or not after this $1.7 trillion omnibus bill has been approved by Congress. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this monstrosity right after these important messages. Back with Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. This show uh, has a home on the internet at justthenews.com that was founded by John Solomon. Victor has a home on the internet. It's called victorhanson.com, S O N, Hanson. 
That's where links to Victor's various appearances and everything he writes, links to his books, links to these podcasts can be found. If you're a fan of BDH, uh, you should be visiting uh, the website regularly and you will find there, oh, that looks like an interesting article. You'll click on it. You won't be able to read it. Why? Because it's an ultra article. It's exclusive for subscribers to the website. You don't have to be a subscriber to go to the website. When you're on the website, you'll find there's a lot of material you can't read. So long story short, consider subscribing. $5 a month or just an initial 5 bucks gets you in the door. Discounted subscription rate is $50 for the year. You will be glad you did it. As for me, Jack Fowler, I am the... Um, I'm the author of a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts, and you can sign up for it at civilthoughts.com. And when you do that, what you'll get every Friday is a collection of 12 to 14 recommended readings. Here's a great piece I saw earlier this week by so-and-so. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. There's nothing transactional about it. It's totally free. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. That's civilthoughts.com, and I write that for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, which is intent on strengthening civil society. So, okay, Victor, uh, the uh, this bill, this massive, massive yeah, I mean, bill. Well, I got really angry. I know everybody is beating up on Mitch McConnell, but he said something that was so self-incriminatory and damning. He said... Well, what were we supposed to do? You only had two choices. You either vote for this bill or you shut down the government and the military. That's not true. You could have had a continuing resolution and go over in January. So they had a a bill that no one read, 4,000 pages, that was concocted together very quickly. They voted on it at night during the holiday season in a lame duck Congress. And Republicans went along with that. And were, there's, you know, Rand Paul showed of the 1.7 trillion, 400, 500 billion was just worthless. I mentioned the FBI, but I mean, they gave money to sanctuary cities to deliberately violate federal law. And they gave money to Middle Eastern countries to work on their border security, where we have 5 million illegal entries back and forth or whatever you want to call entries since Biden took office. So it wasn't just neutral. It, did, it wasn't just, I guess, negligent and not addressing inflation, gas prices, energy crisis, border crisis, crime crisis. There was no money for any of that, but it actually rewarded stuff that is adding to that problem. First, by in, it's inflationary. We're $31 trillion in debt. Interest rates are up to 4.5. We're going to pay $450 billion dollars in interest. We don't have the money, Jack. And so we're going to run a 1.7, almost the amount of this bill, and there's going to be others, is a, the amount of money they're going to have to print because they're, they don't have revenues for it. And they're right. getting 300 to 500 billion year after year in additional revenues because of tax increases. Remember when the Republicans, and I think that lost them the 2018 congressional elections, when they eliminated the state and local tax deduction from states like New York and California, that that just poured in the money right. uh, when you couldn't write off your state taxes. And then in addition to that, when Joe Biden 
raise the rates, the income tax rates on individual income, household income. So they got a huge surge. They've had more money than they ever had, and yet they're spending at double that rate. And so they, it's just a joke. These people are just, it's just like somebody with a credit card who goes out and he buys, you know, he buys crazy things. He buys his nephew this and his cousin this. They don't need it. He gets a seventh cell phone. He gets three Apple watches and he it's all on credit. It's just insane that the government would do this and sneak it through. Yeah. And the Republicans would participate in this. And more on McConnell, Victor, let's uh, for whatever reason, let's say the bill had to pass. Um, we had to have this omnibus. What, why didn't McConnell at least try? I don't know what he got out of it, what he got out of it and saying he is allegedly a conservative representing certain things we believe in. I think I know what he got out of it, because if he had, <laughs> if he had got Go a, conti- a continuing resolution, which they could have had, they could have funded the government up till January. And the Democrats would have had to go along with it. I mean, they weren't going to vote to shut down the government. So they could have done that. And then the House was going to flip in January. And it was going to be it wasn't just that there were seven or eight uh, Republican edge. But a lot of these races, there were MAGA people in there in the House, at least. And he was scared stiff that they were going to look at this bill item by item and hold it up. And then the Republican Party would be called obstructionist or whatever, and he wouldn't be considered sober judicious. And remember about McConnell, he's at a point in his career that he is obsessed with Donald Trump. Maybe it's justified. Maybe it's not. He hates him. He hates everything about him. And and Mitch McConnell would rather be. Would I think this is on incontestable? He would rather be minority Senate leader than have the Republicans win the Senate and he not be Senate majority leader. That's clear. And that's why he didn't fund Blake Masters. That's why he didn't fund. uh, That's why he funded uh, Lisa Murkowski in that civil war and in uh, Alaska. So that's what he is. And he's, you know, I don't I mean, he did one great thing, and that is he saved the Supreme Court by his uh, legislative gymnastics. He was a master at that and everybody owes him a debt of gratitude. But after that, his leadership has been ossified, calcified, sclerotic. It's just not it's not it. Even if it was politically neutral, it was inert. And um, it's not his age. I mean, look at Nancy Pelosi. She's 82 and she did a lot of damage. (laughs) Uh, in her 80s and late 70s. Another thing is, just to finish this discussion on the bill, we're going to build a San Francisco federal multi-million dollar building to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. She's going to be remembered for three things. One, she tore up the State of the Union address on national TV. No one ever did that. No one will ever do it again. Number two, as Speaker of the House, she set a new rule in the Congress that she could veto any appointment from the House Minority Leader. And she will see that boomerang on immediately in, in January. She did that. And she, as Speaker of the House, she was in charge of capital security. And we're going to learn that she either deliberately or with a wink and a nod forgot to get security on January 6th. All right. And yet we're going to honor her with a building in her name. Just 
a joke. Her daughter's making a documentary of her. It's on TV. Mm-hmm. Nobody has done more damage this country than she has. Well, and uh, profited from her position, Profit. too. Well, her, they're worth a couple hundred million dollars. How can you do that when you're in politics? Basically, every appropriations bill, every regulatory statute, every financial regulation, her husband found out about it in advance, didn't he? Yeah. And yeah. he made the necessary adjustments. Now, how else are the real estate acquisitions? How do you how do you go from? I mean, nobody's been more adroit at that than the late, except the late Harry Reid. Harry Reid, right? Yeah, he became a multi. He and his family became multimillionaires by being, you know, a week, a month ahead of the actual policy announcement, and they invested accordingly in Nevada. Victor, just to wrap this up, um, you, you know, uh, I used to be the congressional reporter for National Review way back you know, 30 years ago. And the process at the time, since we're talking about this, you know, federal spending was a um, ha- the, the Appropriations Committee had subcommittees for labor, HHS, et cetera. They would meet, they would produce a bill. The full committee would do its work. It would go to the full House. Senate would do the same thing. It would have to be based on a separate process. That was the appropriations process, but it was supposed to meet an authorization process. You know, the the defense, uh, the the armed services committee would produce would author uh, produce an authorization bill for spending, and these things would percolate each one separately, and the you know the president would sign or veto, and then would go back, etc. And so much of of um, it's all gone. It's 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 all gone. And but through that process, the spending was exposed at various levels over over so much time. And now it's four. It reminds me of the Roman. It reminds me of the Roman Senate in the time of Tiberius or Nero. You know what I mean? It's the same thing. It's a joke. It really is, and it's it's tragic. But oh, there's always a correction, and there is a correction, and that means if you're going to be 123% of GDP, uh, your debt, and the interest rates right now are 4.5 on federal bond holding, mm-hmm. then, and we know what's going to happen because everybody thinks the recession is over. No, it's just getting started. And when these interest rates go up to on federal debt, five and a half or 6%, uh, that that 31 trillion is going to go up to, you know, it's going to get up to 600, 700 um, billion. Eventually, in about three years, it's going to be 25% of the budget. And you're either going to have to go back to the, you know, something like, as I said earlier, the uh, Simpson Bowles formula of 2010 to reduce the debt, right. which, by the way, had we adopted, as I said earlier, we would have been right now uh, owing $10 trillion, not 31. But you're going to have to do something or you're going to have to default on the debt. And we talked about that with Sammy, all the various machinations that would happen if you confiscated 401s and gave somebody Social Security credit for it, or you just told the bondholders who make a certain income, sorry, you made a bad investment, just like Wall Street, we're not going to honor it. Or you just do the Weimar Republic route of, of inflating your way out of it. Or you keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And then you're just taxing people to pay interest to people who have bonds. And you know how that's going to work. There's going to be a, a typical democratic demagogue. Is that they have so much money. They have more money than we all do. 
why do we give them interest on their bonds? Just cancel it. Just like the student debt. Yeah. So that was what was the scariest thing about the whole lockdown that Anthony Fauci essentially violated or had the ability given to him to violate or to break contracts between a landlord and lessee and the government student loan because he just said it's COVID. It's COVID. It's COVID. You got locked down everything and you've got to I give authorize the government to do this and this. And they did. Wow. That's another person, you know. Not only are we going to learn about January 6th, but if you watch Anthony Fauci lately, he looks like a very worried person. He came out the other day this week and said that he, he got back on the science. I represent I saw, the science. Right. Did you see right. that? Science, yes. science. And I thought, what is the science that you represent that when you told us that the vaccinations would protect all of us at 96% from being infected or being infectious? Or that no mask, one mask, two masks were optimum. Our natural immunity really was subpar. And then you had said it was, and the Wuhan lab, he's still insisting, remember, that the Wuhan lab was not the source of this pathogen. And we're going to learn as soon as he's gone and as soon as the house take starts investigating, we're going to learn not only was the Wuhan lab the source of it, and not only was the People's Liberation Army in control of the lab, but we're going to finally learn, I think, that this type of research was ultimately under the control of the Chinese military for bioweapon purposes. doesn't mean it was a bioweapon. It doesn't mean that they did it deliberately. But the type of accelerated research uh, led to this weird engineered virus. And he's going to look really stupid because he channeled money to it and he knows he did. And they're going to I mean, he's he really if you, if you just came from Mars, Jack, and you studied the situation and you didn't know about his history during the AIDS crisis and the blue red dichotomy over quarantines and covid policies and the Trump Biden, all get rid of all that and just look at the evidence it's really frightening. You come back to the idea that the United States funded gain of function research for coronaviruses and gave the money to the Echo Health people who were beneficiaries of other federal largesse, and they channeled it to researchers at Wuhan and a engineered coronavirus broke out. And once it broke out, the Chinese government suppressed information and allowed travel to Europe and the United States of infected people, but not out of Wuhan. They shut down all travel out of Wuhan. And for 11 days, these people were spreading it all around the world. And that's that's the truth. And that is a damning indictment of Anthony Fauci. And, yeah. Victor, he'll go to his grave, I think, like Alger Hiss and others. Lying the whole way and without a scintilla of shame. And he will be role. iconic. You still meet old fossilized liberals who claim that Alger Hiss was innocent. You'll see right. people that still have their Anthony Fauci bobble toy right. miniature statue in their window. You know, they still will. Yeah. Still the idiots who wear Che Guevara T-shirts. Yep. Uh, same thing. Hey, Victor, let's um, you were talking about debt and debt has a color in culture and that color is red and red is a color that has been 
abused for ideological and political purposes. And we're going to talk about that right after these important messages. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So Victor, you know that right after you, one of my my favorite uh, people in the world, an old, old friend is, is Dan Mahoney, professor or emeritus at Assumption University. And Dan even sat in uh, one of our podcasts a long time ago to, yeah, to talk to do. you about uh, the dying citizen. So Dan has a great piece up uh, on the American mind, and uh, which is a website of produced by the uh, good folks at the Claremont Institute. And it's called The New Reds. And Dan goes through, you know, sort of for, for what was for all of us was kind of an obvious history. Red, that was the color of uh, the French Revolution. It's the color of the communists. We call fellow travelers pinkos, right, which is a variation of the color red. But something um, happened in America in in the year 2000 that that this color which was so so associated with the left all of a sudden became associated uh with conservative uh, conservatism so uh, according to Dan this piece again it's called the new reds it's up on the american mind website uh, let me just read one quick little paragraph uh, here the political meaning of red was once loud and clear no more at least in the United States. A unilateral decision was made by the national television networks in the contentious presidential year of 2000 to have red represent the Republican Party and blue the Democratic one. One prominent network television executive justified this arbitrary and counterintuitive decision by pointing out that the Republican Party begins with the letter R, hardly a compelling reason for reversing political symbolism deeply rooted in the political experience of modern man since the late 18th century. As a result, American conservatives are now the new reds, a change of language and symbolism that is truly startling if anyone took the time to think about it. Victor, I, I think this is a simple case uh, that Dan makes and a kind of an obvious case, but one not spoken about much and one I, that I think has cultural uh, consequences. Do you have any thoughts on on this? I shared this article with you. Do you have anything you want to say? Well, it, he was right. I mean, traditionally, the Republicans were blue, and that came way back in the 19th century because of their blue uniforms in the Civil War. So when you had earlier sketches and you wanted to show the dichotomies vis-a-vis -vis the Mason-Dixon line, you had the blue areas, and that was the blue, and then you had the gray areas of the Democrat. You had the old blue. Remember the blue-gray football game? Blue was a Republican color, and then, right. as, as he points out, in 2000, they came up with this bogus idea, red Republican, but, I mean, they didn't say blue what? What does B stand for? So we know that that wasn't symmetrical, and 
I think they wanted to, to demonize Republicans as the, you know, the flag of revolution red. That was very clear. They did that. And yeah. it's kind of it was kind of dormant. And then when Trump came in, they've really had the idea of red and insurrection and January 6th and. It, it it reinforces that image, but they don't use it in Europe. I mean, the red, the red party in Europe with the red flags are commies. And that's pretty clear. Red means proudly so the people who embrace the color of revolution. But uh, say Republicans are red, you could just say, well, no, red's already taken. It stands for revolution or whatever. And I think originally the idea of red and revolution came from blood, you know, that they were willing to shed blood for a cause. But blue was a Republican color. It always had been. And when it was tied to the Civil War and it's not anymore for the last 22 years. Yeah. Thanks, Victor. Um, yeah, there's a little self-embracing that's gone on now. I don't I don't know how, you know, the, the bell here has been rung, how it can be unrung, but um so be it. We have one other topic to talk about in uh, the remaining time. And by the way, folks who are listening, we're hearing noise in the background. Again, it's Christmas Eve and there's people in the Fowler house. So you know, we got to deal with it. There is a new issue of Strategica out. So Strategica is the online journal at the Hoover Institution that Victor oversees. We'll call him the kind of editor at large um, for for this uh, very worthwhile publication. I think everyone who's listening to this program should uh, visit it, Strategica. It's uh, episode, excuse me, not episode, issue number 82. And Victor, it's about tactical nuclear weapons and more. Uh, it's about, um, uh, well, here's the lead piece. So there's always a, a lead piece in the Strategica articles that others use as a jumping off point, comment on it or use it. A, you know, for related topics. And this is by um, Thomas Caraco. I may have mispronounced his name. You will correct me, Victor, if I'm wrong. And it's titled Deterrence, Air Defense, and Munitions Production in a New Missile Age. So we're in a new missile age. Victor, what, what was the, what's the, the purpose of this new um, issue of Strategica? Well, it, it grew out of, obviously, Ukraine and I was worried that there were people in the government that each time uh, Putin was threatening the use of tactical nuclear weapons, and sometimes they weren't tactical. There were members, remember in the Duma, the Russian legislature that were sounding off about sending a missile into London and then sending a missile under the West Coast, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody had been arguing they wouldn't do it because there's no reason to do it. So I thought, well, maybe we should find out what was the history of nuclear, uh, the discussions of nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons usage. And are they still or are they still viable on the battlefield? Are they more viable? And so we always have a background or a long essay. So we had Thomas. Caraco, and he's with the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies. He's an ex. He's, I think, you could say that he's the world's expert on that. And on that long essay, he points out that the days of the Scud missiles are over. The sophistication in guidance and payload and hypersonic speeds and mobile platforms mean that. 
along with drones, they're saturating. They're, they're just saturating the skies and they're much cheaper. So it's sort of like a musket versus a carbine or a machine gun. And so you have the ability just to blanket an entire country with cheap missiles that can be pretty much produced ad infinitum. And so that's what's happening in Ukraine. And it makes the ability to shoot them down much more costly because the guidance system in an anti-ballistic or an anti-rocket ballistic missile is very expensive. And so and there and you don't get 100 percent. Uh, accuracy. So when these swarms of missiles come in and you want to shoot them down, as the Israelis have discovered, to get a 95 or 94 percent hit record, you spend hundreds of millions of dollars and you can't do it uh, forever. So we're in a new stage is what he's saying. And throughout history, you have the predominance of the offensive you know, you have catapults that can knock down old stone walls and then you get big stone walls with mud brick or dirt inside and the catapult doesn't work. And then you get the, the era of the defensive keep or castle and then gunpowder comes in and back back and forth. Well, right now we're in the the phase of the offensive missile because not because they're bigger than ever and they have more nuclear payload than ever, but because there's thousands of them and you can miniaturize tactical nuclear weapons. So he could send in, I don't know, 500 missiles and we wouldn't know which one is nuclear and which isn't. And so and what would be the purpose? And then the company by Jacob Griegel and um, Bob Kaufman discuss whether this would be a viable strategy or not to have a nuclear weapon. And I think they kind of agree that, first of all, it would be counterproductive in the long run. But that would depend on whether he would be foolish enough to take out, say, Kiev with a tactical nuclear weapon or take out Chernobyl vis-a-vis going into a battlefield or an empty area and demonstrating uh, that he's capable of anything. And if he were to do that, I think while Bob Kaufman is a little bit more pessimistic that he could do that and he could find some strategic advantage than Griegel is. But nevertheless, it would be along the lines, see, I broke the barrier. I'm the first person since Hiroshima in a wartime environment to let off a nuclear weapon, which means I'm capable of everything and I'm crazy. And so I want this war stopped on my terms. And then what would be the reaction? Would we send these billion-dollar Patriot? I think we have 90 of them, and they have $1 million missiles. We've given one of these batteries with, the, I don't know how many missiles, Patriot missiles. They're very sophisticated since their first appearance in the first Gulf War. But uh, would you have to build them? And then I think all of them, all three essays come to the agreement that while the United States has been worried about counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan and light footprint and reforming the Marines to make it more mobile, that they completely lost the ball what was going on with hypersonic missiles in Russia and these swarm batteries coming out of China. And they re-engineered that drone, remember, that during the Obama administration crashed and right crashed in Iran. And the result is that we're 
way behind the eight ball. We should be making tens of thousands of these light missiles and more missile batteries and more drones. Otherwise, uh, as Ukraine has shown us, we're in big trouble. Ukraine is sort of the 1936-37-38 Spanish Civil War, where it was a laboratory yeah. for World War II. And, you know, they were sitting in the Stuka dive bombers, a Mark I tank, um, and they just they tried to discover what would work and what would not. And Germany and Italy learned a great deal, as did Russia from it. And we're all learning from this laboratory. It's killing 250,000 civilians and soldiers. And, Victor, this sounds all offensive. Yes. And and then it means like, well, how the hell how the hell could this be prevented? I mean, could it, is there even a thought of like an SDI? Would it matter anymore? Not just, until we get to a new phase. So everybody has to remember this about weaponry, that you have a knight and he's protected uh, from sword thrust and javelin thrust and, and a lot of arrows. And then you get a crossbow that can go through his armor and then you make him have heavier armor. And he's immune. Nothing can hurt him. And then you get the arbicus, uh, and you get primitive musketry, and that can penetrate him. And then you have a, I don't know, 400-year reign of the superiority of bullets. And then you get Kevlar and heavy plates, and we're getting back to the idea that, you know, you've got some protection. And back and forth, back and forth. Well, right now, we're into a phase, as I said, where because of the sophisticated guidance system, these aren't Scud missiles anymore. They're very, very accurate, and they can be very, very small, and they can still carry a lot of explosive, and you can't stop them, along with drones who can be very slow, but go at you know very high altitudes but especially they can move in a way a missile can't go around corners go through windows uh hover in one place and we're not we're not able to offer defenses or if we are able to offer defenses the item is so expensive vis-a-vis -vis the offensive missile the defensive it's not worth it you couldn't you couldn't knock them all down it would cost a fortune so yeah. then you would have, and you can see where we're going with this. Right. So somebody in the Pentagon is on the ground in Ukraine and Ukraine's infrastructure is being systematically destroyed by these drones and missiles. And he's saying, okay, there's only one strategy. We can't knock them down. We, you've got one Patriot bat battery, but it's 100, it's a million dollars for every launch. So you've got to go to the source. Where are they coming from? Where are the launching areas? And once you get into that, you're into attacking Russia on Mother Russian soil. And that's going to be very scary. But in this, these three essays discuss some of this, but they also discuss if Putin himself is runs out of some of these missiles and he's, he seems to have less, fewer missiles than before, seems to be buying things from North Korea and Iran then maybe he would want to go, you know, trump that with a display of a, a tactical nuclear weapon. But as they point out, you don't need to do that yet, as long as you have the wherewithal to blanket the skies of Ukraine with missiles. I think this is very important because we're going to talk about Zelensky. And when he came and addressed our Congress, 
it was it was kind of strange. I mean, Tucker Carlson went after him and some of the, the right did. And then Michael Beschwap that now discredited a, a presidential history. I don't know what's happened to him, but he used to be somewhat sober and judicious, left wing, but within the parameters of credibility. And he just said, we need the names of every um, Republican legislature or congressman that didn't stand up and give him an applause. That was sort of right out of Stalin's addresses. But my point is that when Zelensky came here, he asked for, uh, you know, even though we're running, as I said, a $1.7 trillion annual deficit, $31 trillion, he asked for a lot of money. And we gave him, I think it's going to get over now, the 64 and the 30s. It's well over $100 billion that's going to Zelensky. But he, he, he implied that wasn't enough. Right. And so... Given the destruction of the infrastructure, and they've lost a hundred thousand dead, and his population is only, uh, you know, about a third, maybe a fourth of what Russia's population is, he's going to be a a, a complete dependent on the United States' goodwill, and uh, I don't know what he wants, but he apparently wants more and more of these Patriot batteries and some of the. I won't go into individual authors. Some of the authors are kind of criticizing us in this strategic issue, saying we should have built more of them and had more research so they were cheaper. But we also very early on, Thomas Cockerell says that we should have very early on been giving them more as a deterrent. I don't know, but I could say that somebody named somebody who was president at some time had a hot mic exchange when he said to the president of Russia, tell Vladimir, if he gives me more space, this is my last election in exchange. I will be flexible on missile defense, meaning I will pull the rug from the Czech Republic and Poland so they will not have missile defense capability. And, of course, both mm. sides of that bargain were kept. Does his name rhyme with Obama? <laughs> <laughs> Victor, I believe. Oh, Biden, you, I say. I guess both <laughs> of them were involved. Oh, Biden, the great Irishman from Kenya. Victor, did uh, you, you I think you discussed at length uh, uh, Zelensky and his visit in America with uh, Sammy, the great Sammy Wink on another uh, one of the other podcasts. I'm correct on that, correct? Yes, we talked okay. about it. Yeah. Okay. So I encourage our listeners to, I'm sure they do anyway, but find that uh, particular podcast and, and where Victor delves more into, into this. So that said, that's about nearly all the time we have today. We thank our listeners no matter what platform they're on. And those who do take in this show via Apple Podcasts or iTunes have the ability to rate it zero to five stars. Still, again, five stars, nearly five star average rating, 4.9 something. And some people leave comments. They also leave comments on, on Victor's website, which are terrific. On the, the piece you, you mentioned, Victor, I know you talked about it with Sammy. On the uh, 10 steps to save America, a ton of comments there, very worth uh, looking at. Anyway, on um, on um, uh, Apple Podcasts, we have a few. And here's one from Ernstigator. 
and it's titled Excellent Podcast for Struggling Academics Like Me. Love Victor's show. I appreciate the wit, wisdom, and sheer intelligence Victor brings to examining current events. I especially appreciate how Victor has helped me better understand the world of academia. I came to academia after 30-plus years in business, leaving as a CEO. Academia made no sense to me. I'm still curious how it stays alive. Thank you, Victor, for shining the light. Simply the best, Ernst Gator. Thank you, Ernst Gator and everyone else who does leave comments. I read them. I know Victor and Sammy read them, too. Really appreciate it. Uh, Victor, again, this is uh, Christmas Eve. We're recording. I hope that you were not a naughty boy this, this year, that you were you were nice. I think whoever I is the so. opposite of Santa has saddled you with long COVID and uh, the, you know, the two at least two cases. Of COVID I had three. Be, year. Yeah, I've had three acute cases. I just got over the third one two weeks ago. But it was a pan, it was a pansy COVID. I mean, when you take the, when you take the test, at the antigen, you know, you get that strong bar where you don't want to see it. Right. That bar with me looked like it was gray rather than solid. So I was convinced that it wasn't until I went on the internet and decided. I was told that if you have any bar at all, you have it. But maybe the the fact that it was faded reflected the fact I had long COVID. So I had some antibodies. But I'm getting so anyway, I strangled that third case as I use that term. And I am still gonna try to be back to normal in 2023 is my goal. You gotta be. You got a book to finish, right? Yes, I am way behind on a book, but I'm gonna finish it nonetheless. Okay. Well, Victor, I hope Santa leaves you uh nice toys and, and goodies in your stocking. The same for the great uh, Mrs. Hansen, and uh, th- thanks to our listeners. I know this is coming after Christmas, but I hope you had a merry one. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a wonderful holiday. Bye.